Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Well, good morning and welcome to Wealth Psychology with Jamie and Emily on Sylvia Global Radio. We are so excited about today's show. Thanks for being here. We have a very special guest today. As you all know, Jamie and I are really passionate about supporting people in really living and leading a truly rich life. And we are going to be talking about the whole concept of legacy and how to live your legacy now with author Barbara Greenspan, Shaman, and she's a social entrepreneur, a successful businesswoman, and the founder of Champions of Caring, which is a nonprofit that touches the lives of over 10,000 teenagers over the last 17 years. And she's been promoting social activism among youth and bringing cultures of caring into schools and communities. And she has recently launched Embrace Your Legacy Now, bringing this extraordinary work that she's done into the lives of adults, families, into corporations, because people have resonated so strongly with her message in terms of how to not just know how to live your legacy and be conscious about it, but how to actualize it and take really effective action and be able to be intergenerational in it or in a team setting around it. So welcome, Barbara. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here today with you, Emily, and with Jamie. And I am so delighted not only to have you, Barbara, but to be back on the show, Emily. I've missed the last couple weeks, so I'm really delighted to be back on. Jamie, it's such uh, a pleasure to have you. And um, I want to give them a moment for the listeners to understand and get an update about what's been happening for you and why the show is particularly relevant. Great. Um, we We did a show a couple months ago about what happens when something unexpected happens in your life and how are you able to move with it um, in the most positive way. And sometimes uh, what you teach is then what you get to live. So I've had that experience in the last three weeks. In fact, it was exactly three weeks ago that I found out that very unexpectedly that I had breast cancer. And um, I'm actually supposed to be in New York with Barbara and Emily doing this show live um, I was leaving for the States the next day and had to cancel it. And it has certainly been a roller coaster ride. Um, I did a whole interview with um, Gail Sylvia yesterday, which we will post the link to after the show, talking about my experience of um, perspective and how the glass half full really takes on a new perspective. Um, and I, you know, we have a word in Yiddish that is besheret, um, and it means meant to be. So, Barbara, it was meant to be that I met you and that I read your book because your story 
and your past and what you've done um, out of that past and what you've created has been so inspiring to me. Um, and I find particularly now in the face of being diagnosed with breast cancer, um, I'm so grateful for for what you're doing and um, what you say in your book. So um, I just really am so proud and delighted to be on the show with you. Well, thank you. I'm very touched by that. And you have such a wonderful perspective on life. And I think so much of facing the difficulties in life is about resiliency and perspective and fighting, an inner fighting that says, I will prevail, I will make this be the best that it can be, and I will even learn from this. Because sometimes tragedies and crises in life teach us so much about ourselves and our role in the world and what's important. And I just feel so blessed that both of you are in my life, and I'm thrilled that I'll be in Israel in about a month to see you and be with you and give you the biggest hug ever. And we're we're so moved that you're here. And uh, we'd love to jump in and have you share with our listeners why what you just said comes not just from a philosophical, you know, this seems like a good idea, but why it's in your bones? Because you have quite a remarkable story to share. Well, thank you. You know, I'm in New York right now, and I, I was raised in New York City, I actually was born in Europe, in Germany, after the war. My parents were Holocaust survivors. And my mother, Carola Greenspan, was a sole survivor of a family of 65 people. She was from large Poland, and when she was just a teenager herself, her whole life was uprooted. And as she would tell me the stories, she was thrown out of her home and had to take just a small pillowcase with her most prized possessions and was put into the lodge ghetto. My mother was an amazing woman who taught me that even under the worst of circumstances, she was able to try to have a positive outlook. And while she was in the lodge ghetto, she took it upon herself to take care of the orphans in the ghetto because, as she said to me so many times over the years, you know, these were just young two-month-olds and three-years-old. They didn't do anything wrong. Someone needed to love them and take care of them as their parents were being deported to concentration camps or dying of typhus and illness. And I was always so moved that my mother, under the worst of circumstances, as just a teenager, understood that she could reach out and make someone's life better. My mother then was sent to Auschwitz, and on to two other death camps. Uh, and what she always talked about was, I knew that the sun could come out for me even after Auschwitz. And that's what sustained me. And this was such a profound lesson that she taught all of my family members, my brother, myself, my children, and even my grandchildren. You see, my mother had a way of looking at life that if you have a positive attitude, if you're a good person, if you maintain your dignity and your humanity, good things can happen. And I once asked her how she stayed alive in Auschwitz, and she shared that she did two things that sustained her. One was to reflect back on wonderful holiday memories, being with her family around the Passover Seder, singing the songs, eating the foods, loving her brothers and sisters. And then she immediately projected to a future which she hoped would happen to her, that one day she would, in fact, have her own family and be able to keep these beautiful traditions alive. So that ability to fantasize and look for the positive 
and know that life can be better and that she was able to maintain her humanity in the most heinous of circumstances. My father worked for Oscar Schindler, and many of you might have seen the film Schindler's List, although unfortunately he was not on that famous list. He worked for Oscar Schindler in Krakow, Poland at Emalia, which was a munitions factory. This helped save my father's life for a very long time, but unfortunately he was on the death march at the end of the war. But even in that circumstance, my father displayed his humanity because he carried his first cousin on his back through the freezing winter snows. He, he saw his cousin was dying, and he felt that if he just let him go, he would die in the, in the snow. And my cousin is now 94 years old and still remembers how my father saved his life. And the third person who had such a tremendous impact on my life was my grandmother, Golda Greenspan. In Auschwitz, my grandmother found berries growing on the ground, and when she crushed them, she saw that they made a rouge-like substance. Every morning in the barracks, they would line up the people for counting them. You know, they took away people's names and gave them numbers. But prior to lining up, my grandmother would rouge the cheeks of the most sickly women in the barracks to give them life for yet another day. And then she shared something that really always touched me. When she was lined up for the count every morning, they would not use your name, as I mentioned, but rather your number. When they called her number, she would say under her breath, my name is Golda, I'm a human being, you will not take away my humanity. So I really learned from these three people about resistance, maintaining humanity, and also the ability to be resilient in life. So I know that in my own life, whenever I've had difficult times with people very ill or dying or business problems or whatever problem I've had, I always think about my mother saying, the sun will come out after Auschwitz. It will always come out. So, Jamie, I really feel that with that kind of an attitude, we can really surmount all kinds of difficulties in life. Absolutely. And I'm wondering, you know, it, it's interesting. Emily and I also did a show on inheritors, and we'll continue to do that on a monthly basis. And we got so many responses from inheritors. Sometimes the inheritors that we work with feel that it's hard to step into uh, their parents' footsteps because their shoes are so big to fill. And in a very different way, I wonder if you ever felt like that and what you had to overcome in order to say, I'm going to do something with my life. I mean, it seems to me with having parents that have been through so much and um, really wanting to make your life count, you know, I'm so curious how you decided to do what you're doing now and if that was ever challenging because it felt daunting. Well, that's a great question. And as I reflect upon that, I always felt that my life was a miracle. What was the probability of someone like myself to be born when 65 members of her mother's family were killed and only three or four people survived on her father's side. You know, Oscar Schindler saved 1,200 people. From those, there are now 6,000 people. I'm really one of those. So I always felt that my life was an extraordinary gift, that it was never to be taken for granted. 
And sometimes it was difficult because I felt I had a major responsibility to make the most of my life, to really, in a way, make up for some of the pain that my parents and grandmother had endured and to make them really proud of me. And I must tell you, this is an interesting question because as I reflect back on being a child, I always wanted to bring home the the A's on the test because I didn't want to disappoint them. I always wanted to be the the child that everyone said was nice and kind and friendly. And I guess I did feel a major responsibility to show them that I understood the value of life and that I was not going to be frivolous about that. Now, having said that, my mother was my greatest supporter and always told me, even in the 50s and 60s, when women didn't think this way, that I could be anything that I wanted to be. Because, you know, in those years, Jamie, you you didn't have that many choices or options as a woman. And my mother was going against the tide. Here's a woman who went through Auschwitz, never finished high school, and yet said to me, dream big, because you can and will make it. And I know when I started my own uh, executive recruitment company in the 80s, I never dreamt that I could run a company that worked on a national level recruiting senior-level healthcare executives and physicians. It was my mother who kept saying, of course you can do this. Try it. Do it. And I, I just always felt that she had my back. She believed in me. She was there for me when things were going not the way I had anticipated they would go because life always throws you a lot of curveballs. But it's how you respond to that. You know, you don't throw away the baby with the bathwater. You think of plan B and plan C and plan F. And you keep on going because if you're committed, you really can make a huge difference. And I'm going to jump in because I had a great pleasure of getting to spend uh, yesterday evening with Barbara. We're actually doing a three-day um, uh, little retreat here in New York together, and we're, we're looking at how to really bring Barbara's work to inheritors and to women um, that really want to look at how to live their legacy now in a big way and to advisors. And uh, Barbara shared with me yesterday, I want to ask you to share a little bit more about this, how you went about getting your master's degree, because this is quite a story in and of itself in terms of perseverance. And um, I think it helps, uh, it would help anybody who's listening understand what you mean by um, perseverance. So tell, tell a little bit about that. Well, you know, I always understood that education was the key. My mother stressed that to me growing up. And, you know, I, I got married when I was 19 years old. And I was about 15 credits shy of finishing my BA at Hunter College in New York. And my husband had just gotten an MBA and got his first job in Daytona Beach, Florida. And he moved. And my mother said to me, do not move with him. We will fly you back and forth, but stay in New York for the summer, work really hard, and get that degree. And at first I was so upset as a 19-year-old bride not to be with my husband, but I feel so grateful that I persevered, and they did follow through. They sent me down to Florida two or three times, and I got my degree. I never went to graduation because there was no time. When I first got married and had children, it was again my mother who said, you know, a BA is a great degree, but now you need a master's degree because I have high hopes for you, and I think you're going to do great things with your life. Well, my husband 
was an executive at a major corporation, and every three to four years we had to move. And I wanted to get that master's degree, and I had already attended three or four different universities to get that degree in education and counseling. And I remember being right at the the end of the line, meaning you had 10 years where you could keep transferring credits. And after 10 years, no school at the time would accept my credits anymore. And it was just a hair over 10 years. And I had moved three or four times, had two children, was dealing with a colicky baby, was trying to do my exams. I did pretty well. I was a straight-A student. But, But they said that I had not done all the work within the allotted time frame, and they were not going to give me my degree. Well, I lost it, and I thought, I will go to the highest court in the land. I'm going to fight for this because I had to move so many times, uproot myself, but education was so paramount to me that I was not going to let this go, and fortunately, I was able to get the degree I wanted to go to my graduation, but unfortunately that day, one of my children had an ear infection. So I never went to that graduation either, but I am so grateful that I persevered. And it was, again, my mother, do it, do it. You will never have regrets, and if you don't do it, you will. So sometimes you have to fight the times and really go with your passion and make your vision a reality. You know, Barbara, I'm so struck. It seems like there's this repeated theme of having someone who really believes in you and the importance for everybody in um, having someone that believes in us. And it seems to me that the work that you do with Champions of Caring is really about showing people that there's someone that believes in them and then giving them the structure to make a difference. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about about this organization. Yes, uh, thank you. And and I and Jamie, you're so on on the mark. Knowing that my mother was always my best friend and greatest advocate made me feel invincible. Made me feel that I could conquer any challenge. Unfortunately, my mom died in March, and I feel such a tremendous void. But in my head, I still hear her speaking to me. So in 1990. I was running my executive search firm, recruiting senior-level healthcare executives and physicians, and my mother announced that she wanted us to go back to Poland, that she felt my brother and I should really hear the story directly from her and from my dad about what they experienced. And that life, real, that trip, rather, really changed my life very dramatically because, you see, I saw what happens when people lose their humanity and when a world stands by silent and indifferent. And walking through Auschwitz and Birkenau was the day that changed me forever. And I'll just briefly share how my mother used to always brush her teeth compulsively, and my brother and I would be very upset because we were always late because Mom had to once again brush her teeth. Well, when we walked through Auschwitz, my mother looked at my brother and at me and said, when I came here, they had already killed my family. They had taken away every worldly possession I had. They had taken away my name. And now all I had left was a rusty, dirty toothbrush that I had hidden in my possession because I felt I could sort of feel a little bit human and clean by having this. And you know what? They took that away from me. When I heard those words at Auschwitz, I got 
such a visceral reaction that I was shaking profoundly and I needed to run out of the museum that we were touring. And outside I heard some young boys who were on a field trip making, just laughing and making jokes and acting so inappropriately. And I approached them and said, do you know where you are? This is Auschwitz. You can't behave this way. And you know, Jamie, at that moment my life changed forever. I had an epiphany that I really needed to work with youth and to teach them about respect, about caring, about compassion. Because as an educator for so many years, I know the most important thing we can give young people, or anyone for that matter, is hope that tomorrow will be better than today and skill sets to empower them to be successful in life. But also, my mother would say, we need to raise a mensch, a kind, caring human being who has respect for themselves and respect for others. And these boys just did not have that. It was at that moment that I realized that I was no longer going to work in the executive search world, which I did love, and change my focus to really work with youth, to teach them that silence and indifference is not acceptable, that we need to stand up and speak out for what we believe in, and that we need to create cultures of caring, environments that promote these pro-social behaviors of caring, compassion, and giving back. And I realized that if I could teach teenagers what I had learned as an entrepreneur, how to write a proposal, how to do a budget, how to give a speech, how, how to really meet the public, how to network, they could become powerful social entrepreneurs. So I came back to the States, and I think everyone I knew thought I had lost it. But I made a commitment that I was now moving into this world of giving back on a full-time basis. I had done this as a volunteer for many, many years. But now I felt after this trip that I wanted to again show my parents, because my father used to say, you never could understand the inhumanity of people. You never will understand what they did to your mother in Auschwitz. Well, I never truly can. But after that trip, it opened up my eyes to the importance of creating a world where hopefully this level of hatred and genocide will not happen again. Now, I'm not that naive. I can't stop major genocide, but I can promote peacefulness in schools. I can try to cut back on bullying by teaching young people to care and respect each other. So I created Champions of Caring, which is a not-for-profit. It's going to be 18 years ago. And I'm proud to tell you that we've worked with 10,000 students in the greater Philadelphia area where I live, and I even started a pilot in Cape Town, South Africa. And what really touches me so about this program is that we work with kids in persistently dangerous schools frequently who have no hope. But when you ask them, where are you going to be three to five years from now, the answer is very frequently dead or in jail. And that haunts me. So I really want to give these young people hope and pull in the community to make, help make their world a better place. And I want to jump in here because um, in our conversations that we've been having, one of the things that uh, Jamie and I are very well aware of and that Barbara is too is that um, as much as there are these youth that uh, everybody is you know, so aware of that are disenfranchised, that are in violent situations, that are really under the gun in a sense, their own kind of personal holocaust against them, and you're really giving them hope. There's the other side of the bell curve. And what often gets missed and that we are really passionate about is making sure that um, the children that are 
that have extraordinary access to everything also have access to really dangerous things mm-hmm. and are also, uh, research is showing, are quite um, challenged as well and very much at risk, mm-hmm. uh, at risk for depression, suicide. They have tremendous pressures. Jamie, you mentioned it in terms of the sense of not being able to measure up and there's this huge level of expectation. Uh, drug and alcohol abuse, teenage pregnancy—like it's really quite extraordinary. And you, could you speak a little bit yeah. about how you have worked with both and and yes. children from both sides of the spectrum? Because that's so inspiring to us. Yes, thank you for raising that. Um, I created a social entrepreneurship institute through Champions of Caring, and to get into the institute, young people have to write about their passion and vision and how they are trying to make the world a better place. And we run sessions uh, where we bring together a very diverse population. So we have some of the wealthiest kids from Philadelphia coming together with some of the most indigent young people. And it's always amazing to me, as Emily just said, the issues confronting the wealthiest in our community, they feel enormous pressure to do as well as, if not better, than their parents to get into the same Ivy League schools, even though that's not what they really want to do. I mean, you know, Emily, you talked about suicide. One young woman said to me, if I don't get in early decision to Harvard, I'm going to kill myself. And I just held her. She was sobbing. She said, my parents will never understand that this is not what I want, but I know this is what they have put in front of me as not an option, but what they expect from me. And, you know, saying, I don't want to be a physician. Both of my parents are physicians. How can I have a voice? And I think giving young people a voice to be able to pursue what they care about, what they're passionate about, to make them feel that they're validated and worthwhile is so important. So I want to jump in really quickly here and make sure our listeners have a voice. And so I want to make sure you know that you can call in 347 215 6138. You can also hashtag Wealth Psychology on Twitter, or you can email us at listeners at sylviaglobal.com. And definitely let us know. Bring in your feedback. Bring in your questions. Um, this is a great opportunity to talk directly to somebody who has been living her legacy now. Jamie, do you have a question for Barbara? I'm wondering, you know, I think it's interesting, Barbara, when we first, uh, when you we're first speaking on the show, you talked about the three people who were most influential in your life and why. And it was almost like a formula of how their influence um, got you to where you are now. And I know that part of the work, a lot of people say, oh, you know, we should live a legacy and develop a legacy. And yet it's so um, a little bit esoteric. Like, what does it mean to live a legacy? So I'm wondering if we can drill down sort of almost formulaically, because I love how clear you are in your thinking about how people are able to go about living a legacy, because um, I think often not knowing keeps us stuck. Yeah. Well, I really believe it's all about individuals' passions and interests and giving people the opportunity to really reflect on what I call their legacy formula. So for me, my formula was 
I was very passionate about youth. I think my mother instilled a love of youth in me because she would tell me the stories that I shared with you about the Lodge Ghetto and taking care of children and how she always wanted to be a teacher. So I actually went into education, which was my first career. So I've always known that I love being amongst young people. And I also feel that sometimes we have to focus on what in society would we like to change? Because each of us can really be change agents if we can really focus on what's important to us, not what other people think, but what we think is important. So for me, genocide, hatred, violence, bullying were always my issues. So I married my love of youth with my anger about bullying and violence And that's where Champions of Caring came from. Let me share a quick story with you that I think might explain this formula (laughs) yet another way. In one of our groups, there was a young Hispanic uh, 15-year-old boy named Raul. And when you say group, you mean the social entrepreneurship group that you talked about, Jamie. And I start each session with, what are you passionate about? What is something that you really love? Because I've come to understand if people can hone in on passion, they will own it and they will be vested in making something happen from their passion. Raul says, I am passionate about salsa dancing. I love it more than anything else I do. I said, great, Raul. Change the world through salsa dancing. At first, he had no clue what I was thinking about or talking about. And then after other students shared, he said, I know what I want to do. You're talking about finding something I love and putting it together with something that bothers me. Well, let me tell you what bothers me. The elderly white people in my community do not seem to like Latino and African-American teenage boys. Whenever they see us walking down the street, they cross the street, they never make eye contact with them. And furthermore, we don't like them either because we think they don't like us. So there's a real issue here of prejudice, and I think that I might be able to use my salsa dancing to change that. I said, Raul, I love what you're talking about, but, you know, we have to have some organization here. I need a proposal from you. If you want to approach the senior center, you have to write a letter to the executive director explaining what your goals and objectives are. I need to understand your timeline, what you're going to do, who's going to be involved. I need to ask you to slow down a minute. So it's... Talk about passionate. I mean, you can just feel the passion coming through is what Barbara's saying. And one of the things that I'm aware of, and you may be noticing this in your body, is as she gets excited and starts to speak about it, uh, you may actually feel your start to self start to contract and become even a little bit overwhelmed because there's a lot she's bringing forward. There's so much here. And one of the things that's brilliant about your book, Live Your Legacy Now, is you chunk it down into these really lovely stories and these individual steps and with such little time I know you're just wanting to give us like the whole thing and please keep going yeah I just want to make sure and give um, everybody a chance to take a breath in and out relax know that you don't have to do any of this right now it's more oh this is how one young man was able to go from a passionate idea to actually putting it into action yeah I don't mean to overwhelm but I want people to understand that here's a 15 year old young man who never heard of this, this living your legacy concept, and yet was empowered and able to do it because he began to understand, like Emily said, it's about steps. First, identifying what do you really care about. Uh, then identifying what do you really love to do. And then thinking of how can I use something that I love, 
like Michelle Obama who uses gardening to deal with uh, early onset diabetes with young people. But you need a plan. And in the book, I do lay out this 10-step plan about putting together goals, objectives, and mission statements. But what I really want to share right now is the beauty of how Raul did this. He recruited 20 African-American and Latino boys. They taught each other how to teach the salsa because he came up with a profound finding. Just because you know how to dance the salsa doesn't mean you know how to teach the salsa. They went into the center. They taught these 70 and 80-year-olds the salsa. He called me and said, we had such a blast that they then taught us this old fogey dance called the jitterbug, and they really started bonding. The next thing they did was do oral interviews, history interviews with these people. What was it like when you were growing up? Was was there any prejudice? Because he wanted them to get in touch with their own feelings and really begin to understand about relationship building. After that, they started writing letters to community partners to paint and clean up the senior center, which he felt was in terrible disrepair. Well, it's a beautiful story because these two populations that did not have a relationship became very close. And every year we have a ceremony um, at Drexel University where young people share how they're living their legacy with the community. And this particular year, Raul and Miss Jane, who was 80, got up in front of hundreds of people, danced the salsa, and then she said something I'll never forget. She went to the microphone and said, you know, Raul, before I met you, I had hate in my heart. They always think you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, Raul, you really did. So here, with salsa dancing and his anger at prejudice, he created this beautiful legacy formula and created a meaningful project. And he even made it sustainable because I talk about impact and sustainability. Raul took his notes and shared them with four other Latino boys in different parts of Philadelphia, and they are now doing similar projects. So he really paid it forward. And, you know, I, I've definitely gotten to hear this story. Could you share a little bit? This, this was not an A student. No. Raul was not somebody who was like a big leader in his community. No. So say that, that Raul was a special needs student, and when I met him, he always looked down at the floor, never made eye contact. And today, I am working in different Philadelphia high schools, creating cultures of caring by training uh, teachers and principals in our methodology, and Raul is a principal intern going to college. That is the most beautiful part of this story for me, that a young man who didn't feel he had a really good shot at a, at a promising future is now in college and wants to be a principal. And what's so <laughs> exciting when I hear this is that you went from being a, a successful businesswoman with a successful executive search firm to cultivating the future executives of the world that are going to change the world and take it in a different direction. Jamie, I know you've got probably, you're popping over there with questions over in Israel. You want to, uh, I, I get to jump in because I'm sitting right next to Barbara. You want to jump in with another question? Well, you know, I just think, again, it's remarkable, you know, the theme of somebody really um, um, trusting you believing in you, pushing and challenging you. And, you know, it's interesting as we listen, Emily, I'm so glad you slowed the conversation down because it, it again, can have that intimidating effect. And we have to remember we're hearing Raul's story from the end to the to the beginning, you know, sort of backwards. And right. my guess is when Raul first started, he didn't think that his goals were as big as they've become. 
he just said, I love salsa dancing and I really don't like how the elderly treat, um, you know, my friends. So it what it's, if I'm right, Barbara, it started as a small goal. We're hearing it from after after much work and much effort. Um, but things can start with a very small idea. His his initial idea, if I'm hearing correctly, was just to go one Saturday or Sunday to this home and to work with with the group for you know a couple hours. So it right. it, it sort of ha- became a life of its own with the passion. And I also would imagine with the positive feedback he he got and he felt from the experience. You know, Raul found what all of us who are involved in service find. The more you give, the more you get back. And that's really the secret. Whether I'm working with Raul or I'm working with people in their 30s or 70s or 80s, it's that joy of discovery that you can be engaged in something that you love and really make a profound difference. A lot of people are afraid. They they sometimes are what I call serial volunteers, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but they jump from one thing to the next to the next. And I really believe that when you have a level of impact with a project that you're doing, you see the profound effect it has on other people's lives. It changes your life in dramatic ways. Um, I want to jump in because uh, we just did a uh, version of our Rich Life Portfolio training last a uh, couple weeks ago with some women that are inheritors in the Bay Area. And we had a, a, a woman in this session that's just quite a remarkable woman in her own right. And um, she openly expressed how overwhelmed she feels by feeling like she has to be this great person who's making this huge difference. And one of the things that we were able to do within this group setting was to reflect back to her that just by choosing to live her passion, Mm -hmm. which um, for her was a simple thing about noticing that there were youth in the park in um, the neighborhood where she uh, has chosen to settle that uh, were pretty intimidating and made it so that uh, people that really loved the park didn't feel comfortable walking their dogs there and she thought, wow, I want to get to know them as human beings. And mm-hmm. she went up and she developed this really beautiful way of showing them how to make eye contact and shake hands. And um, she shared with us this little story. And then she was feeling like, wow, you know, I'm not doing enough and I can't be a big, great person. And Barbara's sitting here shaking her head. And we totally looked at her and we were just like, your decision in that moment as a a woman of affluence and means who's white, to go up to these young people yeah. who don't have any means yeah. and treat them as human beings and respectfully, it's, it's a huge difference. And so it's not about no. uh, changing the world and starting a nonprofit. And it's just no. what you're no. passionate no. about. But I, I need to respond to that. I am in no way stating that you have to start a not-for-profit, that you have to do anything. It's really about reflecting about what will add joy and meaning and purpose to your life. And I think this story that you just shared, Emily, is so beautiful because in a very simple way, this woman is making a huge difference. This The work we do doesn't have to be profound and on a global scale. It could be whatever you want to do. It could be the woman that I know who crochets and knits squares with her mother and her daughter because she thinks she that having an intergenerational activity is so important. 
and then they make Afghans out of these squares, and they researched what they should do with them, and she decided to give them to a halfway house to women who had been incarcerated in prison who are now being released from the halfway house to start their own life. This is such a magnificent project. It's quite simple, but it does so many profound things. It brings three generations of women together. It adds joy to women who are starting a new life, getting a new gift. It makes the women who do the project feel so empowered that they're sharing something very special and establishing a warm, meaningful relationship with a woman who's so different from them. It takes a woman who's very upper middle class and brings her to a population that has had a very difficult life, and yet everyone's on a level playing field because we're all people sharing our humanity and making a difference. So for anyone who's listening, it's what you love. It's what you want to do. This is not a race for a competition. This is about fulfilling your soul, about doing something that pleases you and touches you deeply and makes you feel your humanity. I once saw a T-shirt on the beach that said, flaunt your humanity. And if I can leave a message with everyone today, figure out what your humanity is and then flaunt it in any way that you want. Big time, small time, it doesn't matter. It's that you know that you're living a life of meaning and purpose that resonates with you. Oh, that's so perfect for the question that a listener just wrote in. Um, I, I think you've answered it partially, but I'm going to ask it anyway, and maybe you'll uh, deepen the listening. Um, many youth may face a frustration similar to the boy that Barbara works with, but not think to connect dancing to breaking that barrier. How do you help youth to break out of a conventional thinking and come up with such creative solutions, especially when it's something that might not occur to you either? Well, I've been very blessed that through Champions of Caring, I train teachers in this methodology. And for those of you who are educators, I marry two pedagogies. It's character education and service learning. And we've written curricula that's being taught in the schools, and part of it is doing service learning projects. And the first question is, what are you passionate about? And we've got We've really had young people who love to write poetry who never even realized it, and they're now winning poetry slam contests. Uh, we had a young woman who had such problems. She had seen her brother shot in front of her eyes. You know, she's a couch surfer. I don't know, Jamie, if you know what that means. She doesn't have a home, and she surfs from couch to couch is the way she lives. She was very angry, very bitter, was one of those kids who felt she was going to wind up in jail or dead. and Somehow, one of her teachers through this curriculum found out that she's a brilliant poet, and she started winning poetry slam contests. We were able to get her a scholarship to go on to college, and it really helped turn her life around. So it's just getting to what do you care about, and whether you're an aunt, an uncle, a parent, a grandparent, talk to young people about what they love and engage them in that passion. And I'm going to jump in here because I see it on the other spectrum, and I know you have too, Barbara, and Jamie, I know you have as well. And I'm thinking about a family in particular I worked with where uh, the father was an extraordinarily successful entrepreneur. And he came down with a very heavy hand in what I would say conventional, this conventional thinking that the uh, listener wrote in about, which is the way you're of service is you create businesses that make jobs. Now, and then, like, I'm not a no or a yes, it's that he was really certain about how it should look. 
And uh, one of the questions that I asked, because I engaged with all of the children, and uh, the children ranged in age from 16 to, like, 25, was, you know, what if your youngest daughter, when you go to Africa and you love to hunt and you love to go on these safaris and then you also love to start businesses there, what if her passion is instead of picking up a gun, picking up a camera? Mm -hmm. And what if her passion is to do what she can to save the wildlife instead of kill it? Is there an opening? Is there a space for her to live her passion in the face of your passion? And one of the things we work with a lot is this whole notion of having to steward and care for somebody else's dream and somebody else's conventional attitude about what it should look like versus stepping out into your own truth, having your own voice, and not having it be an argument, not right. having it right. be a, um, you know, for me to be able to shine and do what's my passion, I'm somehow going to be having to fight for it. I'm going to have it and to go against somebody else. Right. You know, what do you see that Darby's itching to talk Well, I'm itching to talk, and when I blurted out no, it was just a no in response to the greatest thing we can do for our children is to respect them and their voice. And if we want to involve youth, we really need to give them the opportunity to think, to reflect on who they are, what their core values and interests are, and let them sit at the table with us and share what they want to do. Because when they are respected and when the patriarch or matriarch or their parents, if we're talking about, you know, grandparents, parents, and, and children sitting at a table, everyone should have a voice. I have been in situations recently where I did something like this, and the nine-year-old's voice was the one that really resonated with everyone because he said to his family, I go to school and they bully kids in wheelchairs who and kids with disabilities, and it really breaks my heart. And I could see that the grandfather, the patriarch, wanted to go in a totally different direction. But this nine-year-old had such a compelling story to tell that I could see the wife nudging the husband saying, shh, let her talk, let her talk. And slowly, everyone started brainstorming around this vision for creating a safer space in school for young people who have disabilities not to be bullied. So what this family wound up doing is wonderful because it engaged the nine-year-old. It showed everyone around the table that's an egalitarian in its process of selecting what they should be doing. And it enriched relationships because the nine-year-old lit up when the grandfather finally said, that's a beautiful idea. And there was a bonding. You know, sometimes we worry about how can we bond with our children and with our grandchildren. Listening to what they want to do and embracing that is a, is a very easy first step. And this way, this young child is now thinking of strategies, is writing ideas for goals and objectives. When you think about the leadership skills, the organizational skills, and the poise and strength that we're giving this younger generation by affording them the opportunity to take a leadership role, it bonds people in a very unique way. So I urge everyone, find the pa- let everyone find their own passion and share it and respect it. Now, this is a great thing because we were talking about the word passion um, yesterday. I want you to talk about, you were talking with a gentleman, um, like, I don't know, a lawyer or something, and what was his response when you said, you know, passion? I was actually teaching a course at a university in Philadelphia, 
And there was a lawyer probably in his early 70s, and after class one day he said to me, Barbara, I need to put this to you very straight. Passion is making love to my wife. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) And after biting my lips, almost to the point of bleeding, I looked at him and said, well, do you have any interest? He said, well, why didn't you say that in the first place? So I am now very careful when I use that word. For some people, there is burning passion. For others, it's smoldering interest. You know, it's more quiet. But what? And then there are people, Emily, I want to talk about this for a moment, who say, I don't have either of those. Thank you. But I'll tell you a story. I once did this at a corporation, and someone came up with their legacy formula. And the woman sitting next to her said, I love your formula, and I don't really have a strong passion or interest, but I'm great at desktop publishing, and if you want to put together a flyer around your your idea, I'll do that. And another person said, you know, I'm really good at public speaking, so if you need an elevator pitch and we want to go to our boss and see if the company will support it, I'll do the pitch with you. So what I love, I came up with this idea of legacy clubs where you bring together people, and it could be an intergenerational project where it's grandparents, children, and grandchildren. It could be at the workplace. It could be in your faith-based community. It could be women or men friends who get together a lot of the time but could start focusing on giving back. And by joining these clubs, this legacy club or forming it, and it could even be virtual on the Internet. You could do it with people in different countries that you know that have similar ideas. You really could start looking at what are the goals and objectives, what talents and strengths does each person bring to the table, and how can we really create a meaningful and sustainable project by using all of our skills. Now, in some places, people take turns picking different topics, In some places, projects grow so big that they keep inviting more people to join. But, you know, there's so many ways to do it. What people should do is find something that's comfortable, that makes sense to them. I always say start small but dream big because if anyone had said to me 18 years ago that I would have touched 10,000 lives in my community, I would have never believed it. That was not the goal I had coming in. I thought if I could change a life, I'd be thrilled. The potential is great, but don't be overwhelmed by this. You start in small ways, and you really can make a huge difference. Oh, Jamie, I know that you, your body must be all lit up with this one. This is so speaking to what we care about so much. And uh, there's a couple of different things that I'm seeing here. Uh, one is we are talking about youth, and we're talking about um, you know how to work with children as they are now. And one of the uh, pieces that Jamie and I see a lot in our work is, and I know that you're seeing this too, Barbara, is uh, there are people that, uh, for whatever reason, have uh, not been able to access or live from their interests and passions because it it didn't feel okay or mm-hmm. or it, there's, there was such a strong, overarching need to be something else. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the pressures from very successful parents with a certain way, like this young woman who was crying because she about Harvard when it wasn't even hers. And uh, we work with people on clearing away the emotional pieces and components that uh, kept them pretty trapped and kept them from uh, being able to step into that and feel safe about it. And uh, I love this idea of, you know, starting with something like being 
I, I like desktop publishing. That can be a wonderful kernel of uh, opening up a door for somebody to have their creative expression come forward without having it have to be, um, I'm, you know, I have this passion about uh, water in Africa or about the uh, what's happening in the world where it can be so overwhelming to right. people too. So, yeah. You know what, I just want to say something. I'm a baby boomer. And, you know, I started another company that uh, Emily talked about called Embrace Your Legacy Now because I found that adults really would like to focus on the same kinds of issues that I've been doing with youth. And I'm thrilled that I'm working now with adults, baby boomers, people of all ages, because I think to actualize your own vision for yourself in life is such a gift. And to say, you know, for years I've had to do X. But now I really want to go down a different road because the journey of life is so fascinating. And we can have the power to become who we really would like to be. And, you know, sometimes I'll meet women whose husbands are very, very successful and they've never found their own voice. And they're struggling to be themselves at age 50 or 60 or 70. This is a way for people to really tap into what am I all about? What are my core values? What would I like to see myself doing to add greater meaning? It saddens me when I meet people who might be retired at this point and really not have anything that they see as meaningful and purposeful to do every day and are finding life not so interesting. Make it interesting. We have the power to do this. It's reaching out. It's Doing this with other people, you cannot be an island onto yourself. I think another secret is to be collaborative, but do it with people that are not naysayers. I know when I started my own organizations, people would say, oh, you're never going to pull that off. And I started losing my confidence, and I realized that these people were being toxic to me and my vision for what I wanted to evolve into. So surround yourself with positive, supportive people. Don't share your ideas with everyone who's going to give you advice that might talk you out of what you want to do. But really think about, what do I love? You know, you might have been a lawyer or an accountant or a doctor all of your life, but you're really an artist, and you want to do something with your art to, to you know, change the world in some way or teach art to inner-city kids, whatever it is. Marry that passion with an interest of, or something in society that you feel needs to be addressed. Government cannot do this for us. I think it's great to step up to the plate to know that in any way, small ways, big ways, we can change the world. Because, you know, when you go to bed at night and you reflect on your day, for me, every time I've reached out and touched someone's life in the smallest way, I feel good about myself. I feel that I'm showing my own humanity. And it's not when they're big things. It could be the smallest thing, but it gives you such great joy of life. I I got popped off for a minute, but I'm back. And, you know, um, the oh, passion, I think. Back. We've been missing you. But that oh, thanks. Wrapped, I don't know what happened. Barb, you know, Barbara's. Barbara's this is an international uh, call, a, a show, so sometimes yeah. things happen, but I'm back. Um, well, thank you for I, being here. I don't know if you heard this last part, but Barbara really passionately wrapped up uh, so much of her philosophy and what she, her approach. And I wanted to know if, you know, there's there's such significance to, to both of us in our hearts as we're doing this show about living your legacy now um, when, you know, oftentimes there's this sense of once I get... I'm all done, you know, with everything that I have to do in front of me or, you know, that's what I'm going to get to. 
And I think people really miss that we're living our legacy each moment by the choices we're making. And, and Jamie, you know, you're in this position of having that right up in front of you right now in terms of, wow, am I really living my core values? Am I living that which I'm passionate about each moment, knowing how precious each moment is? And I want to know if you want to say anything about that before we close with the evocative question and our inspirational invitation. Um, I think that w- one of the things that we've talked about in earlier shows, and I think it, it really bears repeating, is thinking about um, our body, our physical body, and recognizing how we're feeling physically. Um, what brings us joy? What uh, makes us tired? And paying attention, you know, as you said, I've quickly really had to re- reevaluate what are the things that are most important to me. And, you know, have gotten a taste, although I don't intend on going anywhere, but a taste of, you know, I'm 45, but who knows how how much longer or maybe we'll do it then. So really noticing in our body, I'm starting to really track the activities that um, land like a lead balloon for me. That I, I went to see a house the other day. We're looking for houses. And I walked in the yard and I said, thank you very much. I'm really sorry that... Um, we wasted your time. I can see it's not worth it to move forward. And my husband just looked at me. He was totally shocked because he wanted to go see the house, but I knew it wasn't the right house, and I didn't want to waste my time. Versus what are the things that bring us joy? Emily, you and I always speak after the radio show, and we are so lit up. We, we, we've had such a blast, and we feel like we're bringing value. So really starting to recognize the difference between those two sensations in our body and being able to intentionally start to move to the things that bring us joy and also can make a difference to other people's lives, I think are so important. Um, and what's and so with that note, I'm I, saying that with, with what Barbara's been saying is she has shown people and shows people in her book, Live Your Legacy Now, and in the workshop she does and the group she leads, how to wed that which brings you joy and really enlivens you with something that really distresses you or brings you, like, concern about the world so that you can tap into that joy, tap into that energy, that thrill of life as you are really making a difference. And Barbara's sitting here nodding her head vigorously. And I want to just make sure we have time to end with what uh, we always leave our listeners with, which is we have an evocative question. And, Barbara, thank you for asking all of those questions that you said. And to distill it down... What do you see that you can do right now to start intentionally living your legacy? And, Jamie, I love that you you're know, saying, Emily, like, if, if the only thing you do is start with noticing in your body what brings you joy and following that thread. And maybe that thread will lead to creating those knitted squares that lead to Afghans for women that were incarcerated. What an extraordinary story. And then the inspiring invitation is to initiate a dialogue with people you feel comfortable with to explore how each of you are living your legacies and how you might support each other. And, Barbara, that was really powerful what you said about surrounding ourselves with people we trust and we know are going to be our champions. And then the last is our useful tools. Uh, We recommend everybody get Barbara's book, Uh, Her name is Barbara Greenspan-Shaman, and her book is Live Your Legacy Now, and you can get it on Amazon. We have it on our Kindle. I love that Jamie can read it in Israel, highlight it. I can open up on my Kindle and see her highlights. 
And then for those of you who are listening and are feeling a bit lost and unsure how to like where to begin or you're feeling like um, you're, you're challenged with not knowing what you're passionate about or not feeling free to live your passion, we have our Rich Life portfolio that you can learn about at wealthlegacygroup.net. Thanks so much for listening and have a fabulous time living your legacy now. Thank you so much, Barbara. Thank you, Jamie. Love you. Love Love you, Jamie. Thank you. Thank you, listeners. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 